I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Good afternoon. This is Transmitting the Light, Sesshin, the second full day, talk three. It's a koan from the Blue Cliff Record. Master Yunman said to his students, everyone has their own light. Everyone has their own light. And then asked, what is this light? What is this light? You're all carrying everyone. Another translation says, each and every one of you right where you sit has a beam of light shining continuously. Now, as of old, far removed from seeing or knowing. What is this light? It's light that we are transmitting continuously and receiving. Chosen Roshi said this morning while guiding a body scan, sweep through the body with the light of awareness. Her words of light guiding us back to our own light, the light of awareness, the hearth, home. Yunman echoes and points to what the Buddha said on the night of their awakening when they looked up at the night sky and saw Venus, the morning star, and said, I, together with all beings and the great earth, are awake, are simultaneously awake. Did Shakyamuni Buddha ignite the flame that night or simply rediscover a light that has been burning, glowing, illuminating since before time? Perhaps the Buddha uncovered a path that we too have to find on our own, but there are pointers in the teachings The Buddha's awakening story, this story, I together with all beings and the great earth, this is our origin story as Zen practitioners. The awakening story of our time, we are shaped by this story. Implicitly in all of the Zen forms, they point to this quality. We are awake. Was there awakening before the Buddha? Of course. We chant the name in our lineage chant of seven generations of Buddhas before Shakyamuni Buddha. What is a generation? Eras of Buddhas, eons of Buddhas, Buddhas who weren't necessarily Buddhist, Buddhas perhaps alive in other universes. Buddhist cosmology invites, it's one way we can open our minds to a greater understanding of time than maybe our normal scientific materialist way of viewing time or our self-centered way of viewing time that revolves around my birth and my death and the birth and death of those that I love. But this presents us with a vast cosmology of time where we have been every single kind of being. And just to entertain that for a moment, that we've lived every single kind of life. We've been poor, we've been rich. We've been abused, we've been the abuser. 
We've been mother, we've been father, we've been monkey, we've been grass, we've been tree. We've been man, woman, non-binary. Really feel into this truth. We've committed every single act of harm. And we've committed every single act of goodness. We've grieved, we've loved, we've fought, we've felt pain. I'm not asking you to believe in rebirth, but just to entertain the notion and see how it opens the heart-mind. How we take this life so seriously but we've been doing this for a very, very, very long time. We say in the, um, the Gata of Atonement, from beginningless time, this karma, this twisted karma. There's one thing I love about myths and from one perspective, myths are a little dead in our culture, but Buddhism is full of myths and invite us back into another way of using the mind and imagination. And koans do this as well. They open us up to a vast picture of time and location and personhood. They open us up to mystery and miracle to I don't know mind. And the practice, as Kaz Tanahashi says, the practice of possibility. Someone reminded me of this practice recently when I was having a very tight view of my life. The practice of possibility. We are endowed with an amazing, creative, mind as human beings, creative heart. Creativity is part of our nature. Spontaneity is native to us. Seeing the world fresh, imagination ignites possibility. What is COVID-19 teaching us? I don't know but it's giving room for new possibility to be imagined on how to live together on this earth. Maybe how to remember back to who we really are. There's a Sangha member who works with the First Nations people uh, in British Columbia, and she was telling me about receiving stories from the native elders. And there's one particular um, man who's quite old and is a story receiver. And he has a story that's 10,000 years old. Two ice ages are remembered in that story. She asked him, where do stories come from? Where are the ancestors? And he pointed out towards the horizon and just gestured, looking, just looking into that vast space, his eyes not settling on a point, but just open. And he said, the past is what's in front of us, but often what we focus on is this much of what's in front of us that tunnel vision we sometimes talk about in Zen. Me and my predicament, my suffering, my life. But my life is vast. It includes the life of the ancestors, this rich past in front of us. And if we think about the past just like this, we're just replaying the same tape over and over again and pasting that onto everything that we meet. Like, oh, I saw this before. Oh, this is a table. 
and then it can get worse. Oh, this is a person, this is a person I don't like. And he said, the future is behind us. And so to have the gaze wide, what is unknown is behind us, but you can open, open the vision towards what's possible, what's unknown, and feel into the unknown and let that guide you. I want to share a story now from our tradition, the first case in the Denko Roku, Master Keizan Zenji's collection that's translated as the record of transmitting the light, which tells the stories of our lineage ancestors from Shakyamuni Buddha through Koan Ejo, which was Dogen Zenji's first disciple. So this is the second case. Once, the world honored one held up a flower and blinked. Kashyapa smiled. The world honored one. The Buddha said, I have the treasury of the true Dharma. I, the wondrous mind of Nirvana. And I now transmit it to you, Kashyapa. This is an important case in our tradition. This too is part of our origin story. In the first case, Shakyamuni Buddha says, everyone I together with all beings are awake, endowed from the start as Maizumi Roshi says. And in the second case, they Shakyamuni Buddha transmit they transmit the light, saying, it's an open secret. Why not share it? And isn't that what we are doing here? We have these sparks of clear seeing, these sparks of open-heartedness, of insight into our delusions. And then, does the flame go out? Or does it just get really dim? Or the light of the computer screen, or the light of the refrigerator, or the light of daydream just gets more enticing. And so we come together to practice to let our sparks to rekindle our sparks, to, to see the fire that's burning in each other, that light, and to affirm it for one another. Zen practice is one of great confidence. Like that first story, great confidence in our original nature as wholeness. The light is right here. We are endowed from the start. It's unshakable faith and great humility. The recognition that we need a lot of help on this path, a lot of help in letting go. That receptivity and sensitivity to the subtlety of awareness is a practice. Refining and clarifying attention is hard work, hard work that yes, we can do alone and it's much easier some of the time to do with others. And seeing through the ego's games and, and strategies, the strategies of the mind is probably the most difficult pursuit a human being could ever endeavor to do. So let's just acknowledge that. The mind has so many ways of getting in there and creating suffering and to really sit patient and be willing to uproot, to see through all of our delusions. We weren't meant to do this. Some, from some perspective. 
I'm going to share from Ayakema, Chosen Roshi read from Ayakema yesterday. She's very inspiring and a very clear Dharma voice. And this is Ayakema talking about renunciation, about the spirit of letting go. Renunciation is part of any spiritual path. It means letting go of our idea of who we are. Hard work or what we want to become or what we want to have. These are ego identifications that constantly reaffirm me and are going in the wrong direction. We think we own my house, my furniture, my husband, my wife, my children, my relatives, my car, my job, my office, my friends. Makes the me feel even more secure because it constitutes a support system. It gives the ego an illusory stability. None of the people or possessions are permanent though. All are, are constantly on the verge of disappearing. If there, if there were reality to this stability, then the bigger the house or the car, the more friends or children, the more wives or husbands, the more secure one would be. Yet having all these people and things just brings more worries and problems. Imagine having 10 husbands instead of one. Perish the thought. Another one of our misconceptions as to what makes us secure. What we like to surround ourselves with is the I, me and mine making. That's a really good line of hers. The I, me and mine making. Our concepts make it so because obviously we can't own anyone. People die at the most inopportune moments. People marry the wrong people and go away with so much as a by-your-own-leave. They make their own karma, yet we still call them mine and actually believe them to belong to us. As soon as we believe that, then we hang on to them for dear life. They have to remain mine. This is our identification process with our family, our job, and the things we own. Instead of just being one me, we have gr now grown and are embedded in several people, a job, a house, and all that goes with it. So we look somewhat larger. To renounce this identification is a very important step. Only if one stands alone can one actually practice the path. That doesn't mean one has to throw out everyone out, sorry. That doesn't mean one has to throw everyone out of one's house, but as long as one is dependent upon what somebody else says, thinks, or does, how can one practice for one's own freedom? Without this identification, the ego returns to its normal size, just one me, and that's all. It doesn't mean that the ego has been eliminated, but it just has become more manageable again. One body, one mind, without owning and identifying with a lot of people and things. Becoming something or someone, even an excellent meditator, is another ego affirmation. Instead of being right now and being totally attentive to what is really here, one wants to become, which is in the future. What is there to say about the future? Nothing. The future is a complete blank. But being, but being right now is something we can attend to with total awareness. But being right now is something we can attend to with total awareness. To become something more than what one is, an excellent meditator, a boss, famous, rich, beloved, makes the ego a bit bigger again. Becoming isn't useful. Being is. The ego, that's the ego down to a manageable size again. We can actually be aware of being. So part of this koan of Mahakashapa smiling as the Buddha holds up a flower and blinks is speaking to the nature of teacher-student relationship. And this is why we have teachers to help us get our egos back down to a manageable size. 
as Ayakema said. Of course, if we have an open mind, everyone is doing this for us. Everyone is helping us to get our egos back down to a manageable size. Especially if you live in community or have children or a partner or colleagues or go grocery shopping or interact with people at all. The moment we become reactive, they are showing us where ego clinging is. They are helping us make the ego more manageable. They are transmitting the light. And that's why we recommend during Sashin decreasing dis distractions, putting away media as much as we can, decreasing inputs, because then we can see more clearly how the heart reacts. We can see more clearly, oh, I'm calm, just being with my breath. I hear a sound, there's tension. And then I'm blaming my dog, or I'm blaming my partner, or I'm blaming myself. We can, I don't know if this has happened on Zoom. I was curious as I was thinking about this talk, because I can get into like some pretty big projections during session about the other people in the room and like, you know, think that somebody is judging me or deliberately doing something to irritate me, like tapping their foot against the wooden floor or something. But I was wondering if people are getting irritated with each other on the screen. That's a new way to get irritated during session. <laughs> to project, oh, that person is standing where we're supposed to be sitting during service. And you can see, it just helps us see how silly the mind is and how it's always looking for problems or distractions. Like, okay, why do I want to get irritated about a form during session? Or write that passive aggressive note that I know is going to get a reaction from someone. So we see, we see the mind like moving in a certain direction. And then we could even see the action if we decide to take an action moving in a certain direction and just observe like, what is going on? What am I hoping to get from this? And then also just like, usually when I notice, I'm like, oh, this is completely irrelevant and I can just come back to the present moment experience. I don't need to feed some judgment right now. It's actually not that important. So how do we return as quickly as we can to being, as Ayakema said, to being itself, being breath, being the five fingers of each hand, completely inhabiting, wearing our hands like gloves. So, oh, they fit so well. On the first couple days of session, it takes diligence, energy, determination to first recognize when attention has slipped, slipped into Chosen's calling COVID brain, which I like this idea, COVID brain, the just murmuring discontent, spacing out worry, anxiety, just looking for what's wrong mind on the prowl for something to complain about, planning. So noticing, recognizing when attention has slipped. And then second is returning to the practice. And there are two key elements to uh, concentration in the, you know, always in, in, in developing concentration, but especially in the first couple days of session. One is, Vitaka, which is directing attention. And the Buddha uses the analogy of a bird getting ready to take off into flight and that motion of moving the wings down to push up and soar. And that takes great energy, right? To direct the mind to where we want the mind to pay attention. So directing attention to the hands 
And that's just like picking the mind up and placing the mind. We're picking attention up and placing attention in the hands and the breath. And then sustaining attention, the kara, a bird catching the draft, and then having to maintain that constant pressure against the wind to sustain flight, to sustain that element of soaring. I can just imagine this, right? I've not flown yet. But I have sustained attention on, on an object, and it, it takes that kind of diligent pressure, continuous pressure, to stay with the object, to stay. And then, of course, like, just like a bird needs to you know, flap its wings and readjust, re-energize, and find the draft again. Same with us. We can be staying and then energy can kind of start to slip off and discontent starts getting in there, but I'm still kind of with my breath. And then we have to bring the mind back completely to the object of meditation, re-energize our attention. So returning to the koan, the Buddha holds up a flower and blinks. Imagine one of those cat blinks, the cat I love use. I get a lot of those. And Mahakashyapa smiles. So intimate, this koan, so intimate. Two humans seeing each other, really seeing each other. The last time I heard Hogan Roshi talk about this koan, he said, this koan is about love. It's the first time I heard him say love in a Dharma talk too, and I was just so (laughs) touched. This koan is about love. Mahas Kashyapa is a practitioner of the way of love. I'm going to share some of Mahakashyapa's poetry and the story, a little more of his life story, because he really is. And sometimes in the Zen tradition, we have these um, displays of masculinity that's very much warriorship. But Mahakashyapa displays a different form that's really beautiful and touching to me, this, this way of love, of his intimacy, of appreciation and gladness. His name means light drinker. And it was said when he first met the Buddha, his hair fell off and his clothes turned into monastic robes. And that story, it would just is a way of representing the affinity that Mahakashyapa had with the Buddha. And we probably have all had experiences, maybe with a teacher or maybe with somebody in our lives where there's just this magnetism or recognition. Like they see through us or maybe we see through them. And there's an element of safety where the normal protections that we have over the heart aren't there and we let ourselves be seen. Actually had um, a number of people tell me that was their experience with Byron Katie when she was here. They're just seeing her, somehow they felt like they were seen through or their true nature was seen. Like, oh, there's somebody who just allows that kind of recognition to happen. And probably the Buddha was like that too, right? We have all these stories of the Buddha people going to hear the Buddha talk and attaining enlightenment. Some people carry a kind of presence that allows us to just let go. Mahakashyapa was married to Bada Kapilana. And I want to share a little bit of what we know from their story. When Bada Kapilani 
was a child, she witnessed the suffering of insects being eaten by crows and vowed never to marry, but to live a life as a spiritual renunciate. On the same day, far away, a boy named Mahakashapa saw worms being eaten by birds in a freshly plowed field. He was overcome with pity and vowed to become a monk one day. He too vowed that he would never marry. This upset his parents. So he made an agreement with them. He made a golden statue of a beautiful woman and he promised his parents that if a woman could be found who was exactly like that statue, he would marry her. Messengers were sent far and wide searching for a living match and Bada was found. Before their marriage, Bada and Mahakashapa agreed that they would live a celibate life and renounce the world together. After they were married, they cut off each other's hair, put on robes, and set off into homelessness. Mahakashapa encountered the Buddha and ordained, later becoming an arhant and, the leader in the song, and a leader in the Sangha. Five years later, when Mahapajapati established the order of nuns, Bada ordained and also became an arhant. One of the reasons I really love uh, reading and going into the stories of the ancestors is because we taste the truth of everyone has their own light and it's actually a unique life. Everyone's life, all the causes and conditions that make this life, this past, everything I've lived through is completely unique in the whole universe. And the way that the vow arises in me is completely unique. And the way that the vow arises in you and 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 you, it's completely unique. It's just our life. And it's all the things that we've heard and saw and done and the ways we were touched as children, the things that moved us, the vows that we made, the, maybe the vows that we made lifetimes ago or the vows that we picked up the moment we were born. So what vows did we make as children that we're still directed by? What impressions of reality did we see as children that we are just now reopening, remembering, rediscovering. The woman who wrote the commentary to this um, passage that I just read uh, remembers gazing at the Atlantic Ocean where the ocean uh, meets the sky. I mean, looking at the ocean, right? You get that image. And it's just this endless sea and the sky and the ocean join in this mysterious way and she saw an ocean liner just tra tra traversing and her mind said I I want to travel to freedom one day and now she's a Lama and a Tibetan Buddhist teacher and just that that childlike innocence that saw that ship and opened their mind and, and made that vow and then that it was remembered, like Mahakashyapa and Bada. So we don't know. Maybe we don't need to understand why we're moved for certain reasons or certain causes just lodge themselves in our heart and we need to work for them. But it's important to listen to. So I want to share some of Mahakashyapa's poems from the Theragata, which are um, the teachings and enlightenment poems of the first um, enlightened men. And his teaching just shows his love of meditation, just this love, this real genuine love for the, the practice, especially the practice of meditation. And the intimacy that he has with the, the living world um, through his meditation practice. Here's the first poem. 
Where some are exhausted climbing the mountain, there the awakened one's air, mindful, alert, buoyed by his psychic powers, Kashyapa climbs. Returning from his alms round, climbing the peak, Kashyapa does jhana. Jhana actually is the word that um, translates to Zen. So we could say Kashyapa does zazen. With no clinging, having, having abandoned terror and fear. With no clinging, having abandoned terror and fear. Returning from his alms round, climbing the peak. Kashyapa does zazen with no clinging unbound among those who burn. Returning from his alms round, climbing the peak, Kashyapa does zazen with no clinging. His task is done, spread with garlands of vines, places delighting the mind, resounding with elephants appealing. Those rocky crags refresh me. The color of blue dark clouds glistening cooled with the waters of clear flowing streams covered with ladybugs. Those rocky crags refresh me like the peaks of dark blue clouds resounding with tuskers appealing. Those rocky crags refresh me. Their lovely surfaces wet with rain mountains frequented by seers and echoing with peacocks. Those rocky crags refresh me. This is enough for me. This is enough for me, he says, desiring to do zazen, resolute, mindful. Enough for me, desiring the goal, resolute, a monk. Enough for me, desiring comfort, resolute, trained. Enough for me, desiring my duty, resolute, such. Flax flower blue like the sky covered over with clouds, filled with flocks of various birds. Those rocky crags refresh me, uncrowded by householders, frequented by herds of deer, filled with flocks of various birds. Those rocky crags refresh me, with clear waters and massive boulders, frequented by monkeys and deer, covered with moss and water weeds. Those rocky crags refresh me. There is no such pleasure for me in the music of a five-piece band as there is when my mind is at one, seeing the Dharma. How the rocky mountains refresh him. We can be invited into this experience that his poem so vividly invokes. And this is one of the practices I've really taken from Chosen Roshi of invoking the power of imagination. And it's one of the ways to really practice koan in our tradition. So invite yourself into the experience. Remember the last time that you climbed a mountain and made it to a vista, maybe the peak or a vista. And you're sitting there, panoramic view, looking out into the sky. Feeling the cool air. Connecting to the stillness of the mountain, the stability of the mountain, which is now your body, the sky, your heart, your eyes. And all the life that comes to the mountain is your life. Cool air, the wind, the rain, the sounds of birds, 
life-giving, a native intimacy of cool, refreshing clarity of samadhi, of zazen. Intimacy and appreciation of life. The myriad forms of forest life, whatever is appearing. Can we appreciate the heavy, agitated thoughts as herds of deer coming for a visit as we sit here as a mountain, mind like the sky, view panoramic. Can we appreciate distraction as frequent monkey visits or anxiety as flocks of birds just passing through, passing through this view, entertaining the mind, or tension as cloud cover, or if you're at home, the visit of a dog as the visit of these peacocks or dogs. Everything that comes to visit. And here on this mountain, is there an inside and an outside? Is the bird sound any further away than the tension in the chest or the rumbling in the stomach? or the sensations in the hands, or that one anxious thought. Everything that arises, the rich and textured scenery of our life, of our awareness, You can stay on the mountain for the rest of Sashin if you'd like, or you can come down every once in a while, but know you can always go back up. And sometimes it's helpful as a you know, preparation in the beginning of a sitting period to just set the mind up, set awareness up on the mountain. Enter that stillness again, connect to the vast view, feel the intimacy. I've been doing this practice when COVID brain arises, I have a mantra. This is my life. It is a good life. And it just brings me back again, like the mountain, to the intimacy of seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, being, being, experiencing all of it. COVID brain. I have this tree that I love to watch when I'm writing talks or Often when I'm alone in my room, I spend time with this tree. It's like a guardian. It's right out my window. I was writing this talk and just connecting to mountain mind. And I watched the tree. It was quite windy. And it has these new shoots on the ends that kind of dangle like old fingers that are really flexible. I was imagining Shanae, like when she tells us to shake during um, and during Qigong, and they're just like interweaving with each other and flowing. And when I would just let myself be open to that intimacy, there's a transmission that happens. And that's happening all the time, this transmission of flower and wink and smile and tree and wind and 
thoughts and we're constantly being invited into the dance, into the light. This tree was teaching me about receptivity, about spontaneity, about the flexibility of the heart. And it let me smile. I want to share another poem by um, Mahakashyapa. This is more of a teaching from him. The other one was quite a teaching. Simply by flapping the mouth, one doesn't see even oneself. Simply by flapping the mouth, one doesn't see even oneself. One goes around stiff-necked thinking, I'm better than they. Not better, he thinks himself better, the fool. The wise don't praise him, the stiff-necked man. But whoever isn't stirred by the modes of, I'm better, not better, I'm worse, I'm like that. One who's discerning, who acts as he says, well-centered in virtues, committed to tranquility of awareness. He is the one the wise would praise. And then this last poem I want to share is quite beautiful. He's praising one of his Dharma brothers. And oftentimes when we um, do a teaching on the four immeasurables, we talk about appreciative joy, not having a lot of um, teachings in the, in the Pali Canon. But this really is a teaching of appreciative joy, of rejoicing in someone else's virtues. And I was very moved when I read it. These many devas, powerful, prestigious, 10,000 devas, all of Brahman's retinue, stand with their hands over their hearts, paying homage to Shariputra, the Dharma general, enlightened, centered, great master of jhana, saying, homage to you, O thoroughbred man, homage to you, O superlative man, of whom we have no direct knowledge, even of that independence on which you do jhana. How very amazing the awakened ones, very own deep range of which we have no direct knowledge, though we have come as hair-splitting archers. Seeing Shariputra, a man worthy of worship, worshipped by the David retinues, Kashyapa smiled. Kashyapa's smile is one of his trademarks. Can we, can we learn from that smile? Smiling at the, the good fortune of another, the praise of another. Mahakashapa and Shariputra practiced side by side and Shariputra was often praised by the Buddha for being foremost in wisdom. So I imagine there's probably a little bit of competition between the two of them. Anyone who's lived in community probably knows about that. And so it's just touching to hear him able to just really recognize the virtue in someone so fully and celebrate his spiritual insight. I'm going to share a teaching now from Bada. After our wedding, my husband and I put on robes together and soon went our separate ways. Not exactly what most would call a honeymoon. Is this what love looks like? Maybe. When you see what love is and what it isn't. Marriage is hard. The good times come and go. True love doesn't throw a curtain over the whole world and imprison whoever it cares about the most on an empty stage. When the mind is free, it's free of expecting more than is reasonable from any one person. Practice can free us up to really love. This is what Aya Kema was talking about in her teaching on renunciation. Do you love your life? This life, this life, this one that includes your home, family, distracted mind, concentrated mind, sashin mind, sky, 
ladybugs, discomfort, anxiety, wanting to give up, giving up for a little bit momentarily, and then rediscovering inspiration. There is no right way to do this. And all we can ever do, if that's the right verb, is greet our life, greet this life that we have. This life that's only able to be lived by you. And this is the shape of it right now. And I don't know the shape of yours. You do from the inside. And that's all you can know. Isn't that amazing? This miracle of being awake enough to recognize that. To rejoice in the intimacy of this moment. Because this is our life. And sometimes this intimacy is transmitted as a flower. And sometimes as a smile. And sometimes as a wink. And sometimes as hours of boredom. Or a burnt finger. Or a sick puppy dog. Or a frozen computer screen. Or a cool wind. A criticism. A misunderstanding. COVID brain. The ancestors are right here. This universe is, they say, 14 billion years old, and you are part of it. There's so much help and support. Remember, it's only your mind that thinks you are alone. Come home to yourself. Let your heart love right now. As David White says, everything is waiting for you.